the dog and bone. On the panel we have, starting here, Russell Parsons, editor of Marketing Week. Hello. Seb Joseph, brands editor of DigiDay. Stephen Lepertak, editor of The Drum. And last but not least, Rachel Barnes, editor of <coughs> Campaign. Oh, come on. <laughs> a round of applause. It's a good panel. It's a good panel. I'm going to ease them all in gently with a, a, a very soft question. I what, don't like the words you're using, Bradwell. It's really bothering me. What is the role and relevance of the trade press today when companies and businesses have their own channels and platforms, their events like the Adobe Summit, their social media? What is the role and remit of the trade press and its relevance? And I'll take it from the end and work my way up, Rachel. <coughs> Um, well, I think, I'm sure everyone's got different, different opinions on this, but arguably it's probably more relevant than ever to have a trade press, actually. In, in, in today's environment, with the rise of fake news, trusted news sources in whatever walk of life, you know, whether it's business or, you know, newspapers, TV, whatever, to actually, you know, have an independent source of news who are filtering what's happening out, happening out there, I think is vital and you know more so than ever but that doesn't you know that doesn't just mean the trade press gets a you know big tick because it is it really does come down to uh, standards and integrity and there is great variation um, you know across all different industries with the different trade press out there I think we all probably know that and it's it's a it's a, a complex environment today but you know there, there really is a of course a place for a uh, trade press with integrity and you know impeccably high standards to, to filter out all the noise out there. But Stephen, what, what, you know, what is the role and relevance of the trade press in your opinion now? Um, it's, I mean, it's changed an awful lot recently in terms of we're seeing mainstream titles like the Wall Street Journal and New York Times are writing about advertising a lot more and dedicating themselves to it. But what we see is the, the guys who work within the trade press actually know the people on the ground. They, they have a bit more resource, a bit more time, and they actually get to learn the industry a lot more. So you, you spend more time actually furthering stories now, I think, as well as uh, major stories. I mean, what we've seen in the last 24 hours with Facebook and uh, Cambridge Analytica and stuff that we're all going to take and run with and try to talk and further the story uh, but that's from the people we know um, and I think that is going to be our job more and more we, we get under the skin more and we'll probably take stories further. Okay Seb you got anything to add? Yeah just to build on what Stephen and Rachel have sort of said really I think there's so much self-serving rhetoric in advertising at the moment that you kind of need a reality check that's curated by people who are writing about the industry as opposed to kind of for it. Um, I think that's very much what we at DigiDay sort of really sort of think about when we're going into sort of how we tackle stories. Alongside that though, I also think there's a, there's a networking aspect to sort of everything that we all do with the events, the conferences, mm -hmm. and some of the other sort of community aspects of it, like all our publications that kind of also add value uh, as a trade press title. Good answer, and, and Russell? Um, I'm going to be incredibly boring and pretty much agree with uh, my esteemed uh, colleagues from the marketing media and trade press. Um, uh, picking up on what uh, Seb said um, and referring back to your actual question, um, all of those content platforms, events, etc., are essentially there to serve the subject that's hosting them um, and we're not there to do that. Uh, we're there to get under the bonnet and under the uh, skin of the industries that we report on. Um, you can see there um, the investigation that we've just completed, which was a proper investigation, a six month long, where we interrogated and investigated 
uh, school-age students and uh, graduates, undergraduates, um, to try and take the temperature of where marketing sits alongside other professions um, in terms of desirability and what the perception and what the challenges need to be. I mean, that's stage one in what will be uh, a long-term project uh, to make a practical difference. Um, that wouldn't be what any of those platforms would ever mm. think about doing. So that's a perfect example of where we can add genuine value by identifying a problem and seeking to find solutions. Excellent, good. So we've established you need to be there and you get under the bonnet. Speaking of getting under the bonnet, one of the old uh, kind of priorities used to be news. I just want to chat to see if you think news is now commoditized, <coughs> where it sits in your editorial priority list. And do, do you still operate in what I call an old fashioned news sense of needing contacts, needing off the record briefings, needing tip offs? Um, I'll start with Stephen because I know you are an old newsman at heart. Yeah, I love news, but I think it has changed an awful lot in terms of, I know why you say priority, but I mean, it, it still begins with news. Um, trends begin with news and uh, developments in the industry. You report that first and then you spend time uh, delving deep in, into it. So news is still very forefront of, I think, probably how, how we all think. Uh, and we all love breaking a story. There's no reporter in the world that doesn't love to break a story. But... Uh, how that's changed is very much, it's probably not as fast as it was for the last few years because I think we're trying to become more thoughtful in how we approach things. Uh, we're probably also trying to break news against each other, but uh, we're spending more time actually looking at what does it mean for the industry. And that's been a big change for the, for the drum over recent years and that we're taking more and more time to actually look at what does, what does something mean. And I think that's probably the way we're all going to end up going. Rachel, where does news sit in campaigns agenda and, and are you very competitive still about news? Um, we are definitely still very competitive. I think when you've got a weekly print title, it's, it's very different how competitive you are. <coughs> Obviously that's changed now. Yep, so. no one has a weekly print title. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, daily news is still, you know, they're, they're the cogs that keep turning, <coughs> I think. You know, that's, that's the sort of the bedrock of all of our brands is um, you know, the content, the fresh content and the content that underlines what, as brands, we're all about and the voices that we're, you know, we're giving a platform to, they're all vital. Yeah. Okay, Russell, do you still invest resources at Marketing Week in news gathering and kind of news intelligence? Um, yeah, um, I'm going to contradict myself in, in, in about three or four different ways now, but news is great um, and if we are serving the end user, client marketers in our case, uh, by offering intelligence, uh, inspiration, analysis, then I'm pretty neutral about how that comes together. But the reality is, and here's the contradiction, um, that tends for us anyway to lead more to uh, feature analysis in whatever platform that comes to life. So there's an answer in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's still important for us at Digiday, we sort of all publish story a day. Um, but I think increasingly for kind of what we're doing and how it differentiates us in the marketplace, the, the analysis part of the reporting that we do is far more important now as opposed to just nailing the kind of lead. Um, and just picking up on a point that kind of Russell made and, you know, Brian and Jess, the kind of editors of Digiday, sort of really kind of hone into my colleagues and I is that, you know, the work that we're doing really, really needs to be sort of viewed as kind of intelligence almost. So Russell used to use this example when you sort of teaching me that you know someone 
a marketer from Coca-Cola should be able to read a story about Adidas's social media strategy, be able to go back to their boss and say, I think we should be doing some of this because I've read this article in Marketing Week or Digiday and, you know, quite comprehensively, it's told me kind of what it delivers. It's all about sort of, you know, talking about marketing, but within the business environment, I think that's so important now to kind of what we're, what we're trying to do as a title in terms of adding that additional value to, to kind of readers. It's all about kind of insight-driven stuff now, as opposed to just reporting about the fact that something newsworthy has happened. I think everyone kind of does that. So, you know, as titles, it doesn't necessarily give you an edge in the market. It doesn't necessarily make readers come back to your specific title. No. I think, especially with our newsletter and the way that's set up, People are coming to us to kind of read about the impact and the implications of a new story that they may have read elsewhere. I think that's a kind of nice groove that we're kind of in and looking to kind of expand on. Do you, just talking about the analysis, um, do you um, find off-the-record briefings are yeah. valuable? Yeah, bread and butter for kind yeah. of us at Digital. Mm. I think it's really key. Okay. That's good. Context is king, Yeah. yeah. Uh, however that comes to Okay. Fall. No. Um, well, moving into, into longer form content then and, and business profiles and interviews with senior business figures, do you press for exclusivity? Yes, we do. In theory, I guess is probably the answer to that. Um, and we would all, as journalists, we would always, you know, we'd know why we were doing the interview at a certain time and we would push for exclusivity if obviously we have to be realistic if Keith Weed is you know, announcing something, he's going to probably want to talk to a few members of the press and we're not going to turn him down if, you know, especially if it's pre-planned and we can try and be the first to get it and not just a breaking news story, but a comprehensive interview that, you know, shows that we've got access to the inner minds of, uh, of Keith Weed and, and Unilever. Um, but it, I suppose it's not the be all and end all it once was. Okay. And sometimes you know, probably for all of us, sometimes we might miss a moment actually and decide that, well, you know, this, whoever's been interviewed this week, but the big event isn't for six weeks time. Let's actually try and get the more in-depth interview to coincide, you know, for five weeks to actually sort of pick it off then rather than <coughs> just following suit. But I think, you, you know, you have to be realistic actually about the number of opportunities that are out there for these, these key players in the market. And, you know, we do have a, a degree of power in that sense, but, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit daft really to, to turn people down when they are, you know, some of the brilliant minds of the industry. But you, you see the point, Stephen, that, you know, if it's the same profile person, you know, same interview across the press, again, you kind of lose your differentiation unless you've got a specific... Oh, very much. Uh, you don't, I mean, we don't want to all be interviewing the same people. Otherwise, that's the same audience and what, what benefit do they get? You're not, that's not going to split. So what you want to do is you look at either the profile of the person, <coughs> what do they have to say, the situation at the time, maybe they've got something relevant, and you want to know, are they speaking to someone before us? And if they're speaking to someone before us, why would I want to put my resource onto that because it's already been told why would I want my audience might have already read this why would we want to spend time repeating ourselves so you, you do look around you and you do ask those questions but I think it's down to who the person is or what's happening at the time you really need to consider what does what does the audience benefit from us writing this yeah it's not necessarily about our egos no. which probably it once was yeah. mm -hmm. actually you've got to think yeah. about what you're going to be delivering to the audience very much Russell Seb you anything to add to that yeah I don't know if I've got the right to kind of insist on an interview being kind of an exclusive and I think for us it's much more about access I think that's where we kind of really get an edge on kind of all of our of others or we try to at least it's it's having the access and 
that time to kind of ask the questions that we need to ask to kind of make the story our own. So I think for me, when sort of lining up kind of interviews and sort of seeing who's been talking to who, if I think that, you know, I can make that story kind of more applicable to kind of our readers and, and kind of put a different spin on it, then why would I turn it down if it's someone like Keith Reed or Mark Pritchard, regardless of whether or not they've kind of been on the, on the scene, if I feel like I can add something to that debate and kind of come in it with kind of fresh eyes, then for sure I'm going to take it. So if it's someone lower level though? Yeah, but then it wouldn't, I wouldn't be sort of brokering a, a deal of exclusivities for someone lower level. It would kind of be more about, you know, a big heavy hitter. Yeah, heavy hitter. Russell, anything to add to this concept? Um, broadly in agreement, again, boringly with what everybody said. Uh, I mean, I would back ourselves. We write about marketing for marketers and there are several angles and areas of interest um, uh, to explore, even if these guys have already spoken to that person. Um, but it's a pertinent question, and it's one that I've been considering quite a lot just recently. Um, the uh, Marketing Week reach is 40 years old this year, and I've been speaking to a lot of the old editors of Marketing Week. Um, and in the past, and until relatively recently, the FMCG marketer was absolutely king, because all brand stories and all brand theory basically emanated from the likes of P&G, essentially, mm -hmm. and perhaps more recently, Unilever. But now there are tens, hundreds of different stories um, amongst B2B, amongst Smartech, amongst um, all sorts of different ranges, new entrants, uh, new disruptors, marketing stories that other people can learn from either in terms of approach, in terms of strategy, in terms of execution. So I think we could all benefit, and indeed, actually more importantly than us, um, our readers could benefit from hearing from different stories so mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. again I'm going to sit right on the fence agree but there's there's a lot of stories out there perhaps we're just not telling them and um, we've all been a little bit slavish to the dominance of FMCG over the years just on that though I think part of the issue is that as a reporter you've got to come up with big names or interesting stories to to get that you know to get people to kind of yeah. read it and that's again like it's that's the tension that we're sort of always sort of having to kind of it's, balance it's a combination of message yeah. and messenger I yeah. mean, the bigger the name that arrests an audience yeah. if you can marry that with the message or the development that they're talking about then there's the golden ticket and, but um, where our skills come into this though is we know what a story is so it might be we can find a story that hasn't been told from someone who has been interviewed by lots of people we have there's a journalistic um it's, it's just journalism. You, you can actually tell a story and a mail off and it might just be a snippet or something, but you can go, oh no, I think our readers will love that. So you, um, there is a journalistic skill to this as well where, uh, yeah, someone might be interviewed everywhere, but they might just tell you one little thing. You go, oh, well, let's focus on that. So it's it's a judgment call. If you turn something down, I mean, we, we probably all get formal. Oh God, we might have missed that. And if somebody else picks up on that story and you've turned that interview down, <laughs> we will be kicking ourselves. Well, you might, uh, I mean, let's talk about what makes a good business story now. And, and you've probably got different lenses given on your, your magazine's particular approaches. But what does, in essence, make an interesting business story that you'd pay attention to if it was being pitched to you, uh, Seb? Um, it's a really tricky question. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, it comes back to <coughs> the kind of analysis. I don't just want <coughs> to know that something has kind of happened. I kind of want to know initially why, and then I want to know kind of how. I really want to kind of go into the weeds on kind of the mechanics of some of this stuff, particularly around, you know, some of the more pressing issues around transparency, brand safety. I don't just want to write 
that these issues are big because everyone's writing that and we all know that. I kind of want to be able to move it on. Steve, and what's a, a good business story for you? Is it a big, colourful personality involved or business um, insights? Or? I, I, there's nothing. I, I, I wouldn't say it's one thing. I think we're probably all the same here. And sometimes you can interview somebody you don't have an expectation of and they can just be amazing. But sometimes you can go in and see somebody that you think is going to be amazing and can be absolutely useless. Uh, you can, I mean, you might get a feature where you get <laughs> so many different people that just come up with things that probably you haven't written before. Or you might just find a story that maybe it's just something a bit new and kind of give the industry something they haven't had before. So I think we're always looking to try and tell something that's new and different and unique, but uh, I, I couldn't give you one thing. Um, I think you know when you've written something or you've reported something that you're really happy with and hopefully you get feedback from the uh, from the industry and that makes you think, right, we'll try and do that again. But there's there's no one thing that I could pinpoint. Do you try and be provocative? Occasionally, yeah. yeah, because you want people to you want people to talk about the industry. You want people to to actually understand there's an issue here. Would what are our sides? What do we think about things? Um, I believe freedom of speech is a thing. Uh, you need to consider how how you look at it. But yeah, at times being provocative can actually stir debate and move a conversation forward, and also get people talking to you as well. If you can make people passionate, you, they'll they'll talk to you. Okay, Russell, on the, what makes a good business story for Marketing Week? And you might have a different... Um, well, for us, there are about five or six key areas of interest for our audience. Um, effectiveness, how to drive it, how it's changing, how to measure it, uh, personal professional development, how to manage time, resource. Um, so they are almost our starting point. So a good story is anything that provides any kind of additional insight or analysis that brings those priorities, pillars as I rather boringly call them internally, um, to life. So that's, that, that's what makes a good story. Um, okay. And people need to understand when pitching those many, many stories that come our way every week, what is it that these people are trying to do? I'm guessing you're going to come on to that eventually. No, or immediately. Rachel, do you, just to add an extra kind of dimension to that question, do you think there are um, agency chiefs or chief marketing officers at brands who feel entitled to coverage and believe that whatever they say deserves coverage and, and their PR teams therefore believe whatever they say deserves coverage? And who? But, <laughs> do you know what? I, I, I don't think there is... I don't really experience that particularly because I think <clears throat> when you are an agency chief or you're a global CMO or whatever, usually if you want to be saying something, there is a story to be written about it, mm -hmm. not necessarily following the PR line they may want. But I think as journalists, you know, we, we would have the, we would be part of those conversations. Mm -hmm. I think probably the flipping that question around, it's the entitlement for us not to write certain things probably is, is what I do feel yeah. sometimes. But if they try and shut a story down, for example, which mm -hmm. I, I'm not going to name any names, definitely. No, no, but that's, that's where the entitlement, I think, comes in. <clears throat> if we're, we're taking a certain line or we're breaking news, whatever it may be, um, you know, the, it's, that, that's when you get the chiefs on the phone mm -hmm. and they feel they have the authority to, you know, shut, shut a story down and you know, really, that is, I guess, where our, our power, in inverted commas, comes in, because we decide 
what makes a story and how long it's a story for. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you've now opened the can of worms <laughs> about whether what kind of pressures you might come under as editors and, and indeed whether you do get requested to pull stories either by your own internal commercial teams who may see you know, a, a problem if, you're, if there's any kind of criticism of an advertiser. Um, so, uh, Sam, have you come under pressure in your job? Uh, at, at any, not just DigiDay, at any other publication you may work for? Yes, at former not publication. Not from me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at former publication it's happened. Yeah. Um, went to a event, ran a story off the back of what someone said at that event. A couple of hours later, the phone rang. Agency chief kicked off because the client there didn't know there was press there even though it was kind of articulated right at the start of the event, um, and insisted that we take the story down, even though there was nothing factually incorrect about it. Uh, pushback, obviously, but because there was a commercial agreement in place with the agency boss that had made the call, um, someone above me and, and sort of above my pay grade made the call that we should pull the story even though it had gone out to a newsletter and there was nothing factually incorrect about it, tweak it because then that agency would kind of owe us something in the future. Ah, there's uh, the extra sting. Mm. Yeah. So it's a quid pro quo if exactly. you did that. Do, yeah. How did you feel about that when it happened? Yeah, you feel angry, right? Like, you know, you're, you don't want to be, you know, you pride yourself on sort of writing stories. Again, like I said before about the industry, you don't, you know, you're not, you know, the industry sort of marketing tool. Um, and when you do get those kinds of conflicts of interest, they do make you sort of take a step back and think about, you know, where you're going, the title that you're at, and how you can kind of progress moving forward. Because I think fundamentally, if you know that your stories can get compromised by that, and that story is going out with kind of your byline attached to it, then it does make you kind of second, second guess things. Stephen, do you think you're in a position of strength to be able to resist such calls from the commercial? Or are you, as editors, and they apply to all of you now, are you more, closely tied up with, with commercial imperatives than you might have been in your position 10 years ago. Certainly hear a lot more about it, but I mean, even this week, um, somebody's had a word with me and they've just been told where to go. Rachel, was there anything to say about pressures you may come under? I'm happy to say actually that um, we, we don't face any pressure actually. And, and a little while ago, we did have an advertiser in, in the magazine, uh, some time ago this was, but, and we had a feature um, some pre-publishing, a feature that um, quite heavily talked about that advertiser mm. in a negative way. It wasn't just about that advertiser. Um, and we discovered the issue before we published, actually, thankfully. But there was no pressure whatsoever on us pulling the article. The ads were just removed and, you know, featured in a, an issue a few months down the line. Mm. And it was very clear from our commercial team that, you know, that was that there was a line there and they they would never put any pressure on us to to uh, to cross that so, so there's still a line still a line yeah. russell i would um actually mirror what rachel says in terms of uh, what happens at marketing week nobody's ever asked me to pull anything um i suppose the difference between being an editor and a news editor is that you mm -hmm. sit somewhere between commercial marketing and uh, editorial so you have to be attuned to what the sensitivities might be and i've been in situations um, where we've written things, um, our contributors have written some pretty damning things about people that I knew would raise eyebrows. Um, I didn't think for a second of not publishing any of those things. 
uh, except uh, for perhaps giving somebody a heads up in terms of potential implications. Mm. Um, but the thing is, it's, a, it's an uneasy alliance often um, because people want to come to you either to advertise or more, more commonly nowadays to form commercial partnerships. They want to come to you because of the trust, the authority, the integrity that you have. I'm sure that's the same for everybody here. Um, so that's why they want to be associated with you. <clears throat> and so they have to take the rough with the smooth. Let's look a bit about the wallflowers at the orgy statements that we opened with earlier, <clears throat> uh, which suggests, you know, you're, um, you're kind of ringside and not involved. Do you feel you are apart from the industry commentating or a part of the industry celebrating? Um, Rachel, or, you know, campaign naturally. Are you yeah. a part or in the industry? Is you know it what? We? I, with campaign, I think, you know, we're, we're turning 50 this year. Don't look. And <laughs> not me. No. I'm actually turning 40 this year, personally. It's a way cooler anniversary <laughs> than 40. When I, I found know, that it's out, I was good to. It's a birthday. It's a birthday. <laughs> but we have, um, you know, there's, there's pros and cons to this, but a lot of very senior people in the industry have grown up with campaign. You know, they, they, I've, sort of hear anecdotes all the time that they were in the post room or they were wherever and the way they started to understand the market as youngsters was by reading campaign cover to cover every week and getting their hands on it and so that's it's a really enviable position actually to be in that that we're really sort of truly loved by you know a, a certain part of the audience um and so i think i i see it actually that we are a part of it we're not afraid to to critique it, so, you know, that sort of old phrase of being the critical friend in that sense. We're not, we're, we, we're not so part of it that we're, you know, sort of lost in the, lost inside it, I suppose. We can stand back and look over it and comment on, you know, comment on the whole industry and different segments of the industry. But I like the fact that people really care about campaign. And, you know, when we redesign, we hear all sorts of all sorts of comments come back to us because people really care and they've they've lived with it for you know not not for five decades all of them but they've they've lived with it as they've come up through the industry and that that really matters actually. Stephen do you maintain an objective distance or are you in the industry at every event uh, as part of the industry? No I'm, I'm a journalist I'm here to look at what's going on and try and find the stories within it but I'm never going to be a marketer I'm never going to be an advertiser that's um, that's a group of people that I want to know and talk to and hopefully they trust me but I, I'm not a part of them I'm just um, here to actually try and um, try and inform them. <coughs> okay Seb um, do you have friends or contacts? <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> friends or contact friends or contact in the industry can't have both no <laughs> no like I think never the twin <laughs> no I think at Digiday we sort of very much see ourselves as kind of being a part apart from the industry um, you know Brian our editor in chief always talks about us as kind of being business reporters as opposed to advertising reporters and I think that sort of subtle sort of difference really does kind of shape how we sort of come at stories and just picking up on some of the things that Russell mentioned a couple, few minutes back, it always comes back to the kind of efficacy of kind of, you know, marketing and advertising kind of in the, in the round. And I think you can only really sort of interrogate stories and people to that kind of end when you're sort of thinking, when, when you sort of got that objective distance and when you're not sort of, you know, there aren't sort of vested interests at play, you're not sort of feeling like you have to frame a story 
in a positive light all the time because sometimes you just can't do that. And I think if you're sort of looking at it with that kind of distance and you are able to kind of approach a story in a way where you can kind of interrogate it and kind of go into the weeds with some of these things from an objective sort of lens. And I think that kind of really adds the value for what we're trying to do. I know it's not for kind of everyone and sort of, you know, everyone's got their sort of, their viewpoints on it. But I think for us, especially sort of as a challenger brand in kind of Europe, that's where we get kind of our traction, you know, sort of coming with stories that are a little bit punchy, a little bit more controversial because we do have that freedom to kind of ask the questions that not everyone else is gonna, yeah. is gonna ask. Yeah, we're not here to be cheerleaders. If I consider us to be part of the industry, I still think that you know all our reporting is objective mm. but actually as the trade press i think it is important that we do champion what's good about the industry and we do celebrate what's great to you know kind of not artificially but to you know i guess sort of help lift the industry you know yeah. times have been pretty tough in recent years yeah. and if we all we reported was doom and gloom mm. You know, then that's We'd all be out of business as well. Yeah, exactly. So. All right, let's see if we can give some help to, to PR people in the room and, and comms managers uh, who are looking to send their stories to you or talk about potential coverage. What advice do you have for anyone pitching a story to you in the best way to approach you and to shape it, or your team, if not you individually? <laughs> and I'll start at this end with you, Russell. What, what's your advice to PR people approaching the marketing week team and how should they shape those stories? Um, I mean, no your title, uh, know its priorities, uh, know its audience. I mean, I mean it, it should be teaching you to uh, suck eggs, but I used to get really cross, Seb will attest to this, uh, when I was news editor about painful pitches from PRs um, that didn't have any contextual relevance or indeed um, would confuse us with campaign or marketing or yeah. drum or digiday or whatever. Um, now I'm an editor, I've got less time to be annoyed by, well, actually I've got loads of time to be annoyed, just not about that anymore. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, some pretty basic fundamentals of PR, as I see them anyway, is know your audience, uh, i.e. the reporter that you're pitching to, know what their priorities are, know what their areas of expertise are, but most importantly, know what it is that the end user of that title is interested in. Um, now you can do that through developing a contact, developing a relationship with that person, but just some pretty basic Googling will probably suffice. <laughs> mm. Stephen, people pitching to the drum, what do they need to know or how should they shape their pitches? Yeah, get, get the title of the, of the publication right. That tends to help. I think you need to know, be aware of what's happening in the industry. Just keep up to date and who's got the coverage of that story or that trend that you think the person you or the company you're representing might benefit or actually further the story so be really aware of what is going on around you and then you'll probably find the publication for you mm. Rachel your yeah, team must get bombarded well completely you know and actually often I'm probably not the person to pitch to so there's a lot of emails go unanswered every day mm -hmm. And I've kind of, I have to distance myself because I can't be a full-time job replying to all the emails even to say no thank you. So, which is a bit sad, but you know, we do have a big team of journalists. So I guess it is about looking on the website for who's the best person for that specific story mm. to contact. But you know, what is the unique angle? Why does that story matter? Um, you know, if you're writing on sort of a big tech trend or whatever, it's got to be something different to the 500 pieces that have been written in the last couple of years on that mm. issue. It's, you know, always think about the future, 
And if you can, you know, find the, the sort of sex, drugs and rock and roll aspect of any story, which, <laughs> which yeah. is good. But I mean, oh, the boring interpretation of that is what's, you know, how is it, how is it not business as usual? What's different about the story and how, how, is, how is that story actually changing the landscape or changing business for people? Um, in a way that matters and, and will resonate with readers. So, um, you know, and I guess a lot, of the, a lot of the stuff that's pitched to us is quite transparently a PR person helping their client sell their wares. And that's where, you know, we just, we just we push them on to our commercial team to say, you know, if you'd like to advertise or, or work with our, our um, branded content team, that, that might be the way for you. Mm. And sometimes that might come across as rude, but if... If you want to just get your message out there and you know your client wants to sell their wares that's the, that's the way to do it and probably the i don't know if any of any of us have you know even in days gone by <coughs> given editorial to you know to, to to companies looking to do that you know some trade press in other industries certainly i've come across do do that but you know i don't think in our world it happens so I'm yeah, not cheap. No, <laughs> definitely no, not. Exactly. Seb, when people pitch to you, do you prefer to get an email or be phoned? It's a really good question. Um, <laughs> people that kind of know me, it's a lot easier to just kind of call me, and because we can just sort of bounce ideas around, and within sort of five minutes, we kind of know whether or not that's the kind of story. But most of the time, I'm quite happy to sort of look at emails come through. I just don't expect me necessarily to get back to kind of all of them because there's mm. just so many. But what I found kind of really works at the moment is really kind of beneficial for both is when people ask me for feedback as to kind of why stories haven't necessarily, pitches haven't necessarily kind of made the cut. Any don'ts and any do's in one sentence, Russell? Um, <laughs> now you put me on the spot. I think it was Rachel who said, uh, don't offer your silver bullet solution that's going to transform the marketing services industry as news um, unless you're willing to pay for it, unless you can really justify why it's a massive uh, solution or a big solution to a big issue. Fair enough. Rachel, anything on the definitely don't do this side? Um, well, I mean, we have no shortage of content coming at us, you know, sort of like a fire hydrant, I think, day in, day out. So I think be aware, I guess, of journalists' time. Um, but we do want good stories and we want to hear from good talented people within the industry who you know if some if you've got a client who you know is incredibly opinionated and happy to you know put, make that public then potentially you know they, they could be something we want to hear about as opposed to you know just press releases sort of coming at us and and also I guess it's the follow-up emails actually that can be frustrating <laughs> the number of just checking you've got this and then the next day just just checking again that you've got this and it's you never I know write, it's easy to call. reply but you know it would be a full-time job to reply to all the Fair emails enough. and so it's difficult but. all right we, we've come to an end now uh, I could go on for ages I and mean, they've got fascinating things to say about their business and about how to talk to them but what a great panel what a great trade press we have you know we'd be a lot poorer without the trade press so can I have a round of applause for Russell Seb, Stephen and Rachel. Oh,